Well, in the beginning, yes. so the story begins, right? God's story, history. Um, last week, if you were here last week, and those of you who were not, we're gonna, I'm just going to have to catch up here. We're, we're titling this series that I'm doing from the beginning, uh, a closer look at the infancy narratives of the four Gospels, and we're going to look at one of, one of the Gospels each of the Wednesdays during Advent. Last week, we looked at Mark. Yeah, that being, you know, first of all, the shortest. Yeah, we didn't spend much time on it there, so there wasn't much of a story there, of course. And Mark is, as I mentioned last week, probably the first gospel that was written. But we want to take a look as that pro progresses then at the other gospels. And tonight we're going to look at Matthew um, from the beginning. And next week, Luke. And the final week, John's gospel. But God begins his story in the beginning. And last week I mentioned that three of those Gospels use that same word as they begin their account of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, last week Mark said the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, next week we're going to look at Luke and find out that Luke did a little investigating and he says, uh, I examined, investigated everything from the beginning before I now give you this account. And then, of course, John's Gospel begins the same way the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created. That beginning is an important word. The, in Greek, it's arche, from which we get the word archaeology, the beginnings. Uh, and it's an important word, but the, the fact that, in a sense, what God began back in Genesis required a new beginning. With his first people, Israel, uh, failing to be what, live up to what God wanted them to be, he now begins anew, and then the New Testament begins in the Gospels. All right? Uh, so... Tonight we're going to look at Matthew, as I mentioned, in your pew Bibles, if you're using the Bible in front of you in the pew, if you brought your own Bible, you got your own page number there, but in the pew Bible, I think it's page 955, if my memory serves me correctly. If you could turn to that. Matthew, we're going to get now into the Christmas story. Matthew and Luke are the two Gospels that contain the, the actual story of the um, birth of Christ. Uh, and as I mentioned last week also, these Gospels do not overlap when it comes to sharing these first uh, episodes in the life of Christ. They don't overlap. They, they give us unique information. So what we're going to hear tonight from Matthew is only in Matthew, even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke pretty much write the same Gospel account in the rest of the Gospel. We called them do you remember the word that we used last week? The big word begins with sin. <laughs> synoptic. They, they are what we call the synoptic, means similar. They, they optic, they see, you see them synonymously together. They are very similar. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is totally different. But when it comes to the actual Christmas story, they're unique. Matthew is unique, and he's going to begin in a very unique way. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. What does it say? A record of the... 
If you're going to start telling the story of Jesus, which I asked last week, maybe you might consider doing, let's say you were at tasked to write the Christmas story, how would you write it? What would you include? What's important? Where would you begin? How many of you would begin with a, a genealogy? Have any of you done a family genealogy? Used maybe uh, uh, Ancestry.com or something, you know? Jesus has a genealogy. That's important. And Matthew, being the gospel writer who was writing from the perspective of the Jewish mind. Matthew was a Jew. He was one of Jesus' disciples. He's a Jew and he's writing to Jews. And that ancestry is going to be important for him. He begins by telling a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what follows in the next 17 verses is a long genealogy. I'm, we're not going to read that. I'm not going to ask anybody here to read it. Um, but you're going to recognize some words, some names there, aren't you? Some of these names are familiar. Well, certainly David and Abraham, you know those guys from the Old Testament. You might even remember some of the patriarchs that follow Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, maybe Judah. But then it gets a little, little uh, fuzzy here in terms of your recollection of these guys in the Old Testament. Until you get down to verse 6, and you might recognize this name too, huh? David? You might even know some stories about David. You know, the one about Goliath? That David? And uh, some of the other uh, stories that you learned in Sunday school about David. And then what follows, and you might remember Solomon, and then a bunch of names that you don't recognize. And then for sure, after verse 12, you might re recall that the nation of Israel was, was taken into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. That also took place in the Old Testament, during which time people like uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived. You might remember those stories. But then what follows are a bunch of names again, I'm guessing that you probably don't recognize. All the way down to verse 17. And then verse 17, we read, thus there were... 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. That would be verses 2 through 6. Okay. 14 from David to the exile in Babylon. That would be verse 6 up through to verse 12. And 14 from the exile to the Christ. If my math is correct, 14 plus 14 plus 14 is 42, yes. Uh, what's unique about that number 14? Any, anybody? 14. 14. Another way of looking at 14 is 7 times 2. Is 7 kind of a, an important number in the Bible? Do you know? Have you ever heard of 7 before? In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, how many days did it take him? Six days, but then there was a day of rest. And that seventh day is important. There's even a commandment based on that seventh day. You've got three sets of 14 generations. By the way, um, we're talking about almost 2,000 years here from Abraham to Christ, 2,000 years. And we've got 42 generations. What do you think? These guys have been pretty old when they started having kids, didn't they? 
either that or some of these names are omitted there. These generations are telescoped a little bit. In other words, uh, um, Azor might have been the great-great-grandfather of Zadok, not just the father of, but it's not to say that he wasn't the father of. Matthew is in a very neat way organizing this genealogy to make a theological point. And what would it be? As he's going to do throughout his gospel, by the way, he's very adept at using the Old Testament to make some important truths, to share some important truths about who Jesus is. He's going to say he is the Messiah who was promised long ago. And he's using this way of, and he, he's got the Holy Spirit's help too, right? When he writes, I mean, we believe that. This isn't just Matthew's genius in doing this. This is God's doing, I believe. So you've got 42 generations. That would be how many sets of seven? Six sets of seven. And now what follows those 42 generations? This is how the birth of Jesus Christ, who comes along and becomes, in a sense, that seventh day, the fulfillment of God's creative activity. You know, uh, just the use of numbers to make a theological point. Matthew is saying, in all of this, this history of Jesus' genealogy, uh, it all comes down now to Jesus fulfilling God's creative work. And the seventh day, he is the seventh day of the week. He is the Sabbath rest for all of us. A lot of points we can make about this first chapter of these first 17 verses of Matthew. Uh, these individuals, if you look at them, you don't recognize a lot of them. Some of them you do. But what's unique about it is they're all men, except in verse 3, and in verse 5, and in verse, in fact, twice in verse 5, you've got females in a genealogy, in a patriarchal genealogy. And in verse 6, you've got another. The mother of some of these individuals are mentioned. Yeah, well, Bathsheba's name isn't mentioned, but how is she referred to? In verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why, why is her name not even mentioned? The other gals were Ruth and Tamar and Rahab. Because what's glaring there, and every Jew reading this would know, wouldn't it? What's glaring there is David's sin, his adultery that he committed with Uriah's wife, whose name was Bathsheba. So what does that say about Jesus' pedigree, his ancestors? Was it perfect? Was it the, the kind of pedigree you might expect from, from the savior of the world? Answer is no. I mean, you've got, individuals here, obviously sinners. These, these are not just Jewish ancestors of Jesus. They're human beings, and they're sinful human beings. Every one of them. And yet they're all important 
for us. What does that say about us, our inclusion maybe in this? Did Jesus come into flesh and blood? Yes, this is his human ancestry. He is one of us, the incarnation. God come into f human flesh and blood, and he is one with us in order to be our savior. And, and uh, Matthew makes the point of saying that here, I think in, in beginning his gospel, from the beginning he's saying, Jesus uh, was one of us. All right? What follows in verse 18 to the end of the chapter then is what I would call Joseph's Annunciation. When you use that word, the Annunciation of Jesus' birth, you're usually referring to Mary, and it's the account in Luke where we have Mary's Annunciation, where the angel comes to, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and we'll talk about this next week, and announces to her that she's going to be the mother of the, the savior of the world, and she would be that because she would be, what was conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. Here, Matthew is saying, Joseph is Jesus' legal father, not his biological father, a point that he's going to make. He does in verse 16. In fact, I'm reminded here, when I, when I see this, I'm reminded of a, a, an Advent uh, series that Pastor Dave did at, at Trinity when I was there about Jesus' grandpas. Do you remember that? You dressed up. <laughs> walked out into the sanctuary dressed like, and what were the guys' names? Jacob and Matthew. Okay, and, and where did Matthew come from? Luke. Luke. Luke's genealogy. Luke has a genealogy too, which is the inverse. It's the opposite of, of uh, it's probably Mary's genealogy. Here we have Joseph's genealogy that takes it back to David. Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, but in terms of legal relationship, he was. That's how people knew him. And Matthew answers the question, how is Joseph the father of Jesus? Well, it, and it traces it back through King David. Yeah, and he come out and talked about Jesus' grandpa and grandma. He had one, Mary's father and Joseph's father. But in verses 18 to the end of the chapter, then what you have is the Annunciation, the angel coming to Joseph in a dream and saying, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife, you know, because he had other designs. He was going to divorce her quietly because yeah, she's pregnant and he knew he wasn't the father. So uh, because that which is conceived in her, the angel said in the dream is by the Holy Spirit and you are to name him Jesus. And then what you have is in verse 23, uh, something that Matthew does a lot in his gospel. He will refer to the Old Testament and say, Jesus, uh, that this was to fulfill what, the, the, uh, what was said by the prophet, that a virgin will conceive and bear a child and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Five times in these first two chapters of Matthew, Jesus will, or Matthew will use that phrase, this was done, or this happened in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then he will quote an Old Testament passage. 
Matthew's the guy who likes to do that. And throughout the rest of his gospel, he will do it 12 times throughout his gospel. He will, he will do the same thing. Refer to the Old Testament and say this was to fulfill what the Old Testament said about him. Okay? That is unique to Matthew's gospel, the Annunciation to Joseph. And now what follows in chapter 2 is also unique to Matthew. The coming of the wise men. You, you're familiar with the story. Uh, back home, you have your little nativity set, set up, and, and there you've got uh, baby Jesus in a manger and Mary and Joseph, and next to them some barnyard animals, along with some shepherds. And who else is in there? An angel, probably, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that the angel was there when, when Jesus was born. At least we're not told, but, but who else is, is there? We usually put these guys there too, don't we? The wise men. Do you think they were there that first night? Probably not. Probably not. But here you've got the story of how they came about to be there at some point in Bethlehem, while Mary and Joseph and Jesus are still there. The wise men show up. And you know the story. They followed the star from the east. They saw it in the east. They followed that star. Doesn't say how long. And that led them to Jerusalem first. And there they went to the natural place where you'd think you'd find the king of the Jews, uh, Herod's palace, and talked to Herod and his, his uh, um, Bible scholars there. And come to find out, the scholars say, well, yeah, this, there is going to be a king of the Jews born, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem, because it says right here in the Old Testament, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, uh, you know, from you is going to come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Uh, and so Herod says, well, I'll go, go find him. And when you, what you need to do, find him, come back and tell me and so I can go and worship him too. Well, the wise men go, they find baby Jesus. They, uh, they worship him, as you know, give him gifts of gold and incense, as you just read in Isaiah here about, you know, what would happen when this takes place. And uh, they were warned in a dream, not to go back to Herod. So Joseph, again, in verse 13, is warned that Herod is going to come uh, looking for Jesus to kill him. And uh, he takes the child and his mother and escapes to Egypt until Herod dies. And now look, look what fo follows there in verse 15. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Last week I referred to that passage when I said Jesus becomes, in a sense, everything Israel was supposed to be. And he does it perfectly. Israel becomes reduced to just one, Jesus himself. So that Israel became, in, as a sense, that nation became a prefiguring of the coming salvation of God that he would accomplish through Jesus. And here in this passage, quoted from an Old Testament, kind of an obscure Old Testament passage in Hosea chapter 11, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that was Israel. Israel was the son of God in the Old Testament. And you recall the story of how God called Israel out of Egypt under Moses. 
the ten plagues, finally the Passover, and finally they left to escape through the Red Sea and out into the wilderness, finally got to the promised land. God called his son out of Egypt, and now Jesus becomes Israel, reenacted again, called out of Egypt. He spent some time in Egypt, we don't know how much, but at least until Herod the Great died, and we know he died in 4 BC, so Jesus was already living before Christ. At some point, we don't know how old he was, he was probably born somewhere around 4 BC, and he comes out of Egypt. So that fulfills that Old Testament passage, Matthew says. And then when Herod found out he'd been tricked by the, by the wise men, what does he do? He goes to Bethlehem and kills all the children who are, all the male boys who were born who were two years old and younger. And this, now Matthew recalls again, an incident in the Old Testament, which somehow is fulfilled now in Jesus. What would that incident be? You know, Rachel weeping for her children as she sees them carried off into captivity in Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah quotes, the, is, this is a quote of, from Jeremiah, the voice of, is heard in Ramah, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Rachel, the mother of Joseph, Jacob's wife, who sees her children, her offspring, the nation of Israel, carried off to captivity. And Jesus himself, um, being fulfilling this, in, in terms of the young, young children who are killed in his place, the first martyrs. By the way, that's a, a church, uh, not a festival, but it's a, a church uh, uh, recognition. You, anybody know what day, of the, what day of the year we recognize the killing of the holy innocents, they're called? Three days after Christmas, December 28th. You know, we see the horror of what Jesus' birth, what his coming into the world caused. The death of the first martyrs, they're sometimes called, the children who died because Jesus was born. Um, by the way, the coming of the wise men is recognized in the church on the 12th day of Christmas, which is January. You know, you sing the song, don't you, the 12 days of Christmas? The 12th day of Christmas is January 6th, a day we recognize as Epiphany, but a lot of Christians throughout the world, especially in the Eastern Orthodox Church, recognize that as Christmas Day. It's the Christmas of the Gentiles, in a way. 12 days after Christmas, the wise men come. The church recognizes that, by the way. Do we know that Jesus was born on December 25th? No, we don't. We don't. There's a, there's a whole, we don't have time to go into that tonight, why, why that date was chosen. But, you know, in the darkest time of the year, and it is dark out there, isn't it? It's, you know, at the darkest time of the year, the light of God's grace and salvation shines on us. And the early church in about the fourth century you know, determined that December 25th would be the birth date. At least it's recognized as his birthday. So, Epiphany, January 6th. Well, January 6th, it's a, that's a date that has received a, another degree of infamy now, isn't it? Just read, read the news. It's still in, in the news. What happened on January 6th, two years ago? You know, 
Something, by the way, very similar to what happened in that first epiphany, when you think about it. All right. Um, I think that's, that's enough. What I'd like to do to conclude this is just share two thoughts here. In Matthew's Gospel, I said Matthew is unique. He's a Jew writing to Jews, and he's got a, he's got a purpose in writing. He wants to prove Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament said God's salvation would do. And you'll see this if you study Matthew throughout. You'll see many references to that. But Matthew begins his Gospel with human, the human ancestry of Jesus. In other words, Jesus came for the Jews, but notice already Gentile wise men show up, indicating he's also going to be the savior of the world, Gentiles too. And you see that at the end of Matthew's gospel, if you know how Matthew concludes with chapter 28, verse, verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations. Not just those Jews that were in the genealogy, the ancestry of Jesus. He didn't come just for the Jews, but he came for all people. And you already got a taste of that with the coming of the wise men, Gentile wise men from the East. The other thing you notice at the beginning, in, in verse, uh, uh, verse 23, Matthew 1 verse 23, this Jesus, the son of Mary and the legal son of Joseph, would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is now with us. How does Matthew's gospel end in chapter 28, verse 20, the last verse of the gospel, where he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew bookends his gospel with that thought. God is with us in the birth of Jesus. He is with us now in his ascension and continued presence among us, always with us. Matthew was making a point there in saying that, where he bookends his book, his gospel account, with both of those thoughts. With that in mind, let's, let's approach God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again tonight that we were able to see in your word the truth of how you became one of us in the giving of your son Jesus Christ to be our Savior, wrapped in human flesh and blood, in our flesh and blood, so that we might uh, realize our sins were put on him in his death. And through his resurrection, we have life with you. Continue to bless us throughout this Advent season as we walk with you through these in infancy narratives of the birth of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, thank you again. We'll see you next week with Luke. And if you have an opportunity, read, the, read those first two chapters of Luke before next week. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Paul.